When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the news from the front lines as the battle for Bakhmut continues, analyse news coming out of the G7 in Japan, and respond to listeners' thoughts and questions on Russia, Ukraine, and World War II. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 19th of May, one year and 84 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor Francis Dernley, foreign reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and our Brussels correspondent, Joe Barnes. I started by asking Joe for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi there, folks. So, to start with, we will go to Bakhmut in the Donetsk region. Sort of the hotbed of activity has been for... Well, kind of eight, nine months now. Again, rumours in the city that it's on the verge of collapse and falling enti- entirely into Russian hands as Wagner mercenaries continue their advance through the centre of the city in a westerly direction. Um, kind of in recent days, uh, fighting has apparently come down to the final few streets. So that's the size of the issue we're looking at. But today, Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, Wagner's sort of funder, financier, leader has said it is unlikely Bakhmut will fall to Russia in the coming days. And this is a, a quote from him. Bakhmut is unlikely to be completely taken tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. And he said that on the uh, Telegram messaging app. The Wagner chief described a, um, a the situation essentially and said that Russia's forces are moving in, but they now face an impenetrable fortress. And he described it as a suburb. And there's a few different translations, air, airplane or samolet, that he's uh, that have been used across the internet in interpreting his comments. But he said that's in the southwest of the city where we know Ukraine are basically defending heavily at the moment. And he said, you can't get in there. But that's not all to be said. Um, Russia isn't getting its own way. Ukraine is still trying to progress along the flanks of Bakhmut in the south and the north of the city. So Hannah Myler, who is the Ukrainian Deputy Defence Minister, she wrote on Telegram yesterday afternoon after we'd wrapped up on air then. Today the enemy attacked Bakhmut all day. All attacks were repelled by our defenders. As of now, we control the southwestern part. So she's confirmed that there is still jostling going on over that section of territory. Um, but she also said that 
Ukrainian forces had advanced 500 metres north of Bakhmut and 1,000 metres south of Bakhmut. The spokesman for Ukraine's eastern forces, uh, Serhi Cherovati, stated that Ukrainian forces have advanced up to 1,700 metres in the past day, and he posted that yesterday, and the Ukrainians third a separate assault brigade, who we know have kind of spearheaded this localised mini counter-offensive on behalf of Ukraine, they've expanded the Ukrainian kind of control around Bakhmut by a, a landscape of sort of 2,000 metres wide by 700 metres deep. Um, and what we're also picking up is there's lots of like Russian military bloggers talking about this on Telegram, Twitter, and on their in their own sphere. And they, they have suggested that Ukrainian forces have driven through the Russian defensive line south and southwest of Ivaniska, which is about six kilometres west of Bakhmut, and then northwest of an Klesichivka, which is six kilometres southwest of Bakhmut from the northwest. So there is still a great deal of movement, and it still suggests that the Ukrainians could be trying some sort of double envelopment as has been historically used by the Russians as a tactic to defeat their enemies. Could be interesting. Um, so I really recommend checking out George Barros on Twitter. He um, he works for the Institute of Study of War, and he has recently shared on his Twitter feed a interactive map which kind of demonstrates Ukraine's gains on the flanks of Bekhmut, which have now become an estimated uh, 29 kilometres squared um, gained in favour of Ukraine between May the 9th and May the 18th. So that's, that's really interesting and worth checking out on George's feed. Then we're going to look at long-range strikes again. Um, not as severe as they have been, but I think we're now at the 10th long-range strike that Russia has launched in sort of recent weeks. Um, so Ukraine's air defences have repelled another Russian attack early on Friday morning. Apparently they destroyed 19 out of 28 drones and missiles launched. The Air Force's spokesman told Ukrainian television, and I quote him now, three caliber missiles launched from the Black Sea and 16 drones were shot down. And shelling continues almost on a daily basis. And he said not all targets were hit. We know in the central city of Kriviri, at least two people were injured. And one, one of those seriously after a Russian strike in the region we know that that was aimed at a private industrial complex. We don't know what was in this industrial complex. And the seriously injured includes a 64-year-old woman. A fire also broke out in a four-storey building where a man sustained minor injuries. And then, for a wrap-up, we'll go to the Ministry of Defence's daily intelligence update. And so the UK's Ministry of Defence has said that Thursday's train derailment near the Crimean city of Simifropol, I can never, my pronunciations are terrible, sorry, and in quotations will disrupt deliveries and supplies potentially of weapons to Russia's Black Sea fleet. The Defence Ministry added any sabotage in this sensitive area will further increase the Kremlin's concerns about its ability to protect other key infrastructure in Crimea. The Russian installed head of Crimea said in a statement on Telegram on Thursday that a freight train carrying grain had been derailed in that area. And that nobody was injured. We've, um, I've been looking at who could have done that, and looking at these sort of partisan groups. And one of the, one of the main partisan groups has still not claimed responsibility. 
for the attack, but has joked and laughed and said it won't be the last. And I'll, I'll stop there for now. Thank you very much, Joe. I know you'll have some things to say on some of Francis's updates that are about to come to us, but I'll let Francis come in now. There's been quite a lot of movement diplomatically today. Where would you like to start? Yes, well, thanks, David. It's been a very busy 24 hours in diplomatic circles, and I'll come to the G7 summit in a moment. But first, a significant development in the fighter jets debate. Despite President Biden's previous reluctance to send warplanes to Ukraine, we are hearing this morning that Washington has assured its European allies that they will not impede the export of F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine. That's according to reports in the Washington Post. Now, as I say, the Biden administration had previously seemed very hesitant to do this. And because of the way things work with third party transfer agreements, technically speaking, countries need permission who have purchased these F-16s from America in order for them to be sent on to Ukraine. So that's why listeners are asking why can't, you know, if, if a country has fighter jets, why can't they just send them What if they want to? Why do they have to have permission from the United States? That's the reason when they're sold to you, you have to then give permission, as it were, if they're going to be going on to other parties. That's part of these international agreements. But uh, as I say, that this is noteworthy because we've had so much hesitancy in the past. And so this really unlocks what for many people is considered one of the keys, really, for thinking long term about Ukraine fighting this war. And the Netherlands have already said that they are keen to be able to send these F-16s. Poland also have them as well and have made... I think some warm noises regarding sending it. Romania also have them, as does Greece and Turkey. Not necessarily saying that they will send the F-16s, but they have them, as does Portugal and Belgium and Denmark. So this is a noteworthy development. As I say, previously, the Biden administration was in disagreement with Europe oversupplying the, the Ukrainian army with jets and had declined to allow Western allies to train Ukrainian pilots on the aircraft, despite the impassioned pleas from Kyiv. But as I say, the ground is now clearly shifting. And I was talking to Hamish de Breton Gordon, who, of course, was on the podcast yesterday, this morning about this significant development. And he was saying that this is really the final piece of the jigsaw in many ways. That, And he made the excellent point that this is not only significant for future offensives and being able to use combined arms with tanks and with air support, but also if Russia does attempt to freeze this war for now and then try and launch a invasion in future years, the fact is that Ukraine will now have access to F-16 fighters and will have them and will have people trained up. And that means that Russia would be facing a very, very different kind of enemy than the one that they were fighting when they invaded in February last year and one that would arguably even easier work of the tanks that Russia used to invade then. And if one looks at, at modern warfare in the latter half of the 20th century that has involved modern fighter jets against Soviet era tanks, then usually those wars are over very quickly, most notably the Gulf, which, of course, uh, Hamish fought in. Now, I know that listeners may feel frustrated <laughs> that it's taken so long for the West to unlock the F-16s months ago people who've been following this war closely were urging the West to send Leopard tanks. The West hesitated before finally giving in. And now on jets, they've hesitated and have finally given in. And I think those are very fair criticisms. But another way of looking at it is that this does further turn the screw on Putin. And 
is a further example of that drip drip approach, which I've described in the past. If tanks and jets had been sent to Ukraine from the first weeks of the invasion, there were arguably greater risks of other countries being dragged in. At least that was the perception and or of Putin ramping up the nuclear rhetoric in a harmful way that could have been detrimental for Ukraine. So this is still a very significant development, even if it perhaps it becomes too late for the imminent counteroffensive. In the longer term, this could well be a game changer. And as I say, when I spoke to Hamish, he said for him... It's only a matter of time now, given that this has been announced for the F-16s to arrive and to have a very decisive impact on the future trajectory of this war. But I imagine that Joe will also have some thoughts on this. So I can I can chime in with uh, something interesting that Yahoo News have released in the last 24 hours. So one of the, as Francis alluded to, one of the main opposition was obviously the fact that people think it's an escalation a F-16 has capabilities of firing a lot deeper into Russian territory than some of the weapons currently gifted to Ukraine. But one of the other issues is just the complicated nature of the F-16 and can a Ukrainian fighter pilot fly an F-16 and how long it would take to train a Ukrainian pilot to operate an F-16 So the US earlier this year hosted, uh, so it was in March, they hosted two Ukrainian pilots for basically early evaluations. They use flight simulators to assess these two pilots and their capabilities on the use of modern flight systems, one of them being the F-16 fighter jet. And what Yahoo News has revealed and released is an internal US Air Force assessment of the training, and it found that it would only take four months to bring Ukrainian pilots up to speed on the US-made aircraft. And that document is going to serve as a great sort of lever and pressure point that President Zelensky and other Ukrainians and, well, even European governments that want to send F-16s to Ukraine because previously it had been suggested that it would take 18 months to train a Ukrainian pilot to operate an F-16. But now that they've they've gone to an airbase in Arizona, I believe it was, these two pilots, these Ukrainian pilots, and they've then demonstrated that they can actually operate the systems. One of the big issues with the system is F-16s being American, they're English language systems. So can Ukrainian pilots operate them and the systems in English? Actually, they've shown that that's probably the biggest the biggest stumbling block to flying an F-16 and not the actual using the capability itself. So that's going to be really interesting to see how that's jumped on by the Ukrainians and used to further their cause when it comes to getting these F-16s over to Kyiv. Thank you very much, Joe and Francis, for that. Francis, can I come back to you? Can we talk about the G7 in Hiroshima? Thanks, yes. Let's turn to the G7. Some very interesting lines are coming out of it already, especially from the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, which I'll come to in a moment. But first, I just want to read a a noteworthy statement from all leaders of the G7. And I should say that those countries are, of course, the UK, Japan, Italy, Canada, France, the US and Germany. And I'll read the statement in full. We, the leaders of the G7, reaffirmed our commitment to stand together against Russia's illegal, unjustifiable and unprovoked war of aggression against Ukraine. We condemn, in the strongest terms, Russia's manifest violation of the Charter of the UN and the impact of Russia's war on the rest of the world. 
Fifteen months of Russia's aggression has cost thousands of lives, inflicted immense suffering on the people of Ukraine and imperiled access to food and energy for many of the world's most vulnerable people. We express our full sympathy and condolences to the Ukrainian people for their loss and suffering. We salute them for their brave resilience. Our support for Ukraine will not waver. We will not tire in our commitment to mitigate the impact of Russia's illegal actions on the rest of the world. This is significant because evidently it is designed to undermine something that Putin is relying on, which is that the West will lose interest in this war and turn off the tap the longer that it goes on. And in that regard, I think it's also significant that this morning the G7 has ensured that Ukraine has the budget support it needs for this year and the early part of 2024. They've said that they're taking steps to ensure that the Russian aggression fails and will support Ukraine for as long as it takes and to ensure that a just peace is rooted in respect for international law, which I think is safe to assume that they want to see the return of Ukraine's territory that has been stolen by Russia. Now, as I say, interesting coming out of Britain as well, seeks to steer a new wave of sanctions against Russian assets. Rishi Sunak has announced that they are targeting 86 individuals and businesses connected to Russia's capacity to fund and wage the war. In a statement this morning, the government has said that the designations target those connected to Russia's energy, metals, defence, transport and financial sectors. Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said on Twitter that we are increasing economic pressure, cracking down on Russia's theft of Ukrainian grain and the remaining revenue sources that support its military machine. Now, a very interesting thing that Downing Street have said is that more than 60% of Putin's war chest has been immobilised thanks to international sanctions, which is worth about $275 That is not insubstantial, as you can tell, and it's the first time that I have seen that statistic. Now, another element of this, interestingly, is Britain seeks to ban the sale of Russian diamonds. It will be uphill task. I think it was Belgium that opposed plans to do that. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, um, they've opposed that. But it's a not inconsiderable industry. It, the export market of diamonds from Russia is worth about $4 billion. So once again, if they lost that, it's not insignificant and, and piles pressure financially on the regime. Now, the other noteworthy thing that is coming out of the G7 is that Zelensky will be in attending in person and meeting the Prime Minister of India, Modi. It will be the first time since the war that he's met him and it's clearly an attempt to reach out to those countries who have supported Russia more in the invasion. India has purchased considerable amounts of Russian energy, which I've talked about in the past. But even more interesting is that before Hiroshima, Zelensky is to attend the Arab League meeting in Saudi Arabia. He's landed in the past hour in Jeddah and will be joining summit Arab leaders, including the heads of wealthy Gulf states that have already provided quite substantial aid to Ukraine amid Russia's invasion. Making this decision is not insignificant, as I say, and I think it's designed for two core things. The first being an attempt to show that he wants to appeal to those countries, as I say, who perhaps have given some notable support to Ukraine, but also to appeal to those countries who are on the edge, on the precipice 
regarding whether to support Russia or Ukraine. As I've said in the past, key states in the Arab world have walked a rather fine line between supporting Ukraine and Russia. They've wanted to come across more as mediators. That's certainly Saudi Arabia's perspective, even if they have sent hundreds of millions of support to Ukraine. And I think another aspect of this is that he may well be trying to in a sense, put more pressure on the West and and highlight where perhaps the West has been deficient. But maybe we can talk about that a little bit later on. The uncomfortable side of this, though, is it will be the first Arab League summit to be attended by Bashir al-Assad of Syria in 13 years. He was long shunned regionally and internationally over his suppression of the Arab Spring, the chemical weapons usage, of course, and the war that has killed, well, hundreds of millions of people and displaced millions. He was ostracised, but he is being brought back into the fold, I think, in part because the West has been deemed to have left their influence in the Middle East waning in recent years. Of course, the withdrawal of Afghanistan is part of that. And they feel that now is the time to bring him in somewhat from the cold. And it will, of course, be uncomfortable that the two of them will be at the same summit. Some will cry blasphemy and hypocrisy, no doubt, for Zelensky to be going there when he is in attendance, given the role that the war in Syria had in enabling Putin in 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 the invasion of Ukraine and perhaps even the manner in which he has fought this war in the most egregious ways possible, which some people believe was sanctioned effectively by the West by allowing Bashir al-Assad to use chemical weapons in Syria and by President Obama not agreeing to his own red lines and acting in some way in Syria to prevent the use of chemical weapons. So it's going to be an uncomfortable one. But I think clearly that Zelensky has calculated that Ukraine has more to gain potentially from shaking hands with these leaders than it does to potentially lose by the optical cost of being there at the same time as Bashir al-Assad. But an interesting one, David. Thank you very much, Francis. I'd like to come back to that, but maybe a little later. And Genevieve Hollalan, can we come to you first? You've been running the Ukraine Live blog on the Telegraph website today. You picked out a couple of interesting stories you want to talk us through. Where would you like to start? Hi, David. And yes, a few stories from the live blog from today. I think the first is another story concerning the US and weapons and equipment for Ukraine, which has emerged over the last 24 hours. And this is that officials have admitted to Reuters that the US has overestimated the value of the kit that it has sent to Ukraine by $3 billion, which is about £2.4 billion, which may well have an impact on how many more weapons Washington will send to Kiev. The error occurred because a higher than warranted value was assigned to weaponry that was taken from US stocks and then shipped on to Ukraine, according to two senior defence officials speaking to Reuters on Thursday on the condition of anonymity. In its accounting, the Pentagon used replacement cost to value the weapons aid instead of the weaponry's value when it was purchased and depreciated. One of these officials said, we've discovered inconsistencies in how we value the equipment that we've given to Ukraine. Congress was notified of this accounting adjustment on Thursday, so that was yesterday, the sources said. And one defence official said that the amount, this $3 billion amount of overvalued weaponry could go could grow beyond that as the Pentagon examines the situation more thoroughly. Since August 2021, the United States has sent 
about $21.1 billion worth of weapons to Ukraine from its stockpiles. It is uncertain how Congress is going to react to this, but the changing of the valuation of the equipment could mean that the Biden administration doesn't need to ask Congress to authorise more funds for Ukraine as soon as it thought that it would, just as the debate as to US finances continues to intensify. Just a quick reminder of a couple of the things that the US has already sent through to Ukraine. It's, you know, high Mars launchers, Javelin anti-tank weapons, and um, among some of the most notable stuff is the Patriot surface-to-air missile system, which is currently in use in Kiev to protect the skies above the Ukrainian capital, which we heard just a few days ago had suffered a slight damage. I mean, that weapon alone costs $1 billion. It will take some time to work through the accounting for the billions of dollars worth of equipment sent, according to the senior defence officials. But this is quite a notable update in terms of what more could be coming out of the US for Ukraine. Thanks, Genevieve. Can we turn to some news from Kiev itself? We've obviously spoken a lot about uh, de-Russification, uh, the fact that more Ukrainians are uh, speaking Ukrainian rather than Russian. We've heard that quite a bit over the past year. You've picked up on a, upon one story from the Ukrainian capital, which is another example of this. Would you like to tell us about it? Yes, so this is the news that Kiev City Council has renamed two metro stations, one station under construction and several streets which had names with some connection to Russia in response to to the invasion. So among these, the Friendship of Peoples metro station will from now on be called Sverinetska after the name of a historical district of Kiev and Leo Tolstoy Square, named of course after the renowned Russian author of War and Peace, among others, has become the square of Ukrainian heroes. The station, which is under construction, which was to be called Prospect Pravdi, is now to be named Varshavska, which means Warsaw. At the beginning of the year, the authorities held a vote for the city's residents on the renaming of the metro stations, with the majority voting for the names which were approved by the council on Thursday, according to Radio Svoboda. Um, so uh, alongside this, the Kiev Council also renamed 26 streets and other city objects, the outlet reported. There are some nods to, to Britain and the US in the renamed streets in Kiev. One of the streets has been renamed Winston Churchill Street. Another has been renamed George Orwell Lane and American author Ray Bradbury has lent his name to a street as well. All of these are replacements for the names of Soviet heroes, which used to be the names of of certain roads in the capital. The city's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, said that 314 objects in the city have been renamed in total. And he wrote on Telegram... The process of de-Russification in Kiev continues. It is very important to permanently rid the capital of Soviet and Russian names and symbols associated with the aggressor country. And I'm sure that won't be the last in terms of what will be renamed in Kiev and beyond in Ukraine. Thanks, Genevieve. And we'll make, obviously need to make clear, of course, that this isn't the first time either. But thank you for that. Can we just have one more story from you, Genevieve? Going to Russia again, again, the repression of ordinary people and and others who've spoken out um, against the regime has been a story we've been covering over the past year and beyond. Here's another example. Would you tell us about Mr. Roisman? 
Yes, so Yevgeny Roisman, he's been fined 260,000 rubles, which is the equivalent of about $3,250 for discrediting the Russian military. So Yevgeny Roisman is a former, this is considered mayor of Yekaterinburg and a, a very popular figure and also a prominent Kremlin critic. Quite a lenient sentence in a string of trials which have targeted opposition figures in the country recently. So yes, Mr. Roisman received this fine from a court in the city of Yekaterinburg in the Urals, where he used to be mayor, over charges of discrediting the Russian military, according to Russian news agencies. He was accused of discrediting the army in a video that he uploaded to YouTube in July of last year, in which he criticised the Russian invasion. Since he was detained, he was banned from using the internet, telephone, mail, and attending public events and his communications were reportedly limited to just family members and his lawyers. Mr. Reutzman is quoted as saying after the ruling, in my view, under these circumstances, this is an acquittal. So this charge to which he pleaded not guilty at the beginning of his trial carried a maximum sentence of five years. In 2013, Mr. Reutzman became the mayor of Yekaterinburg and held the position for five years and and was, at that time, Russia's highest profile opposition mayor. And he remains a popular figure in the city and also is a friend of the jailed Kremlin critic Alexei Navalny. And in comparison to this fine, we can think back to... Recently, the opposition politician Vladimir Karamurza jailed for 25 years last month and another well-known government critic, Ilya Yashin, who was sentenced to eight and a half years for spreading false, so what, what is claimed to be false information about the Russian army. Thank you very much, Genevieve Holt-Allen, for all of those stories. I would recommend every listener do go look at the Telegraph website and the uh, Ukraine war live blog that Genevieve has been running today. All the latest info is there. So thank you, Genevieve, for joining us. Francis and Joe, just quickly, I wanted to ask you what you make of the, um, Zelensky's diplomacy in the last few months. Of course, at the beginning of the war, he, he did not leave Ukraine. And now it seems as if he's decided actually that the best work he can be doing is, is to leave and see other world leaders and meet face to face. I'm not sure entirely how much there is to say about it, but there's certainly a shift we've detected over the past few months. What are your thoughts? It's a fair question. Uh, I think evidently the priority for Zelensky has shifted from the first year of the war, which ultimately was about survival and showing solidarity with his people, making it clear, of course, to the world that he wouldn't abandon the country. His priority now, though, is getting weapons and keeping the world united against Russia and his country's plight in the headlines. Evidently, he believes that would be achieved better by him travelling directly, given his star power, his charisma and his general popularity amongst many parts of the world. The other way of looking at this, of course, is it may, as I say, represent something of a frustration within Kyiv that the US and others have maybe not been doing enough to keep some countries more friendly to Putin out of the fray and not financing him. As we've discussed at length in the past, there is frustration, I think, that the West has left the Middle East and Southeast Asia neglected and is now having to pay catch up. But catch up takes time, years usually, and Ukraine doesn't have that kind of time. And so maybe Zelensky has calculated that he needs to strengthen ties with some of these countries on his own initiative and make overtures to them directly that they have potentially have more to lose from supporting Russia in this kind of action than to gain. 
In India's case, of course, it's regarding tensions with China. That's also true of other southeastern countries. And so it's just worth bearing that in mind that Zelensky is, of course, very much within the Western fold. He's immensely grateful, no doubt. He certainly said he has to America and the support that's been offered by Europe. But he also is relying on uh, other countries not supporting Russia. And in that respect, there is always going to be somewhat tension between how the West has handled certain countries in recent years. And so maybe, just maybe, this is a sign of some tension within the alliance. But we don't know that. It's just speculation. Definitely. Joe, can I come to you on this just very briefly? I mean, what struck me about this, well, one aspect of this that strikes me is clearly um, he, feel, he feels comfortable enough to leave the capital. And that might be because it's, it, you know, as, as we've seen in the last few weeks, air defence is working. He, he is able to. Is, is that a fair point? Yeah, it's definitely not as hot. And I, I, um, I remember when Zelensky was doing his America, his first American travels and popped up in the UK on that surprise visit. And then he was going to Brussels. I was lucky enough to speak to his main foreign policy advisor at the time. And um, I, I, I put this kind of candid sort of question to him and said, look, why is like President Zelensky doing this now? Why, why, why do you feel? And, he, and his advisor came back to me and said, look, like this is an, a moment in time where there is a slight pause, there's a slight lull. He said, he said when the invasion at the beginning, there was no way he could leave the country. He had to stand with his fellow Ukrainians and and basically show solidarity and stand up to Putin in that sense. When obviously all the stories about death squads and ch- trying to chase him and out of Kiev or kill or even kill him as a death squad and assassination attempt would allude to. And he said, "Look, there's." So this advisor was saying to me, "Look, Joe, there is a lull in the fighting. We're preparing for this counteroffensive. This is now the time to go out and." do this diplomacy, get to see people, in some cases thank people for their support, going to America. He secured the announcements of the Patriot missile systems. Um, going to Britain, he got the kind of win- wings of freedom and the, he got the early kind of um, progress in these long-range weapons, which we now know are, are storm shadows and have been used, according to Ben Wallace, in Ukraine. So he's, he's he doesn't leave the country not without knowing that he's going to secure something. So he's, we probably think jets is the main thing, but there is lots of, there's lots of, um, to talk about G7, there's lots of sanctions to talk about. He's he's probably looking to expand those sanctions beyond sort of the G7 and convince countries like Saudi Arabia, who have probably traditionally been slightly, uh, and in the Middle East, that have been supplied, have had kind of friendships with India, like the likes of uh, Russia, sorry, not India, and I was going to say Indian leader Modi. He's, got links and ties with Russia. So this is a, a chance for Zelensky to break down those bridges. And I, I yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't take these trips for granted. He's he's like they're preparing this counteroffensive. They're going to launch it we expect soon. Some some people suggest it's already started in the the form of sort of shaping missions and kind of offensives uh, looking for probing different areas of the Russian line. But once that started, we, we know he won't be leaving Ukraine for a while. So he's basically using that lull in fighting, lull in the in the conflict to hammer home his diplomatic message and secure as much support as he can for Ukraine, be it in weaponry or sanctions against Russia that he knows are really useful about crippling the Russian war machine. Thank you, Joe, and Francis, for that. Just finally, before we finish, yesterday, Francis, we ended up talking quite a bit about World War II. I promise listeners it wasn't planned. But of course, we've got quite a lot of responses from our listeners. Francis, you've been going through them. What would you take from that? Thanks, David. Yes. Well, as you say, we weren't planning that segment, which is why perhaps it came across as as rather spontaneous and and, uh, unscripted. Uh, 
And uh, of course, we were talking about the question of the Soviet Union's mobilisation of men and resources being used as an argument as to why Russia can win the battle for resources today in Ukraine. And I was... I suppose trying to counter that view that and and say that the comparisons between Russia today and the Soviet Union post Operation Barbarossa aren't comparable as part of a wider thesis that autocracies more typically degrade their war fighting capabilities over time rather than strengthen them. And this seems to have interested many listeners. I'm very grateful to those who've written kind things over email or in reviews for the podcast. Many of you also highlighted a crucial point that I forgot to mention, namely the vital role played by Len Lees from the United States and support from other allied countries, which really kept the Soviet Union in the fight. And one listener's father actually spent 18 months on HMS Jamaica, convoying from Scotland to Murmansk, delivering resources. So very grateful to them for for reaching out and for for rightly chastising me for not mentioning mentioning the importance of Len Lees. Act. The numbers are staggering, frankly. By the end of June 1944, the US had sent the Soviets extraordinary numbers of material, totaling $11.5 billion at the time, about $180 billion equivalent in today's currency. And it included, and this isn't even a comprehensive list, 400,000 jeeps and trucks, 14,000 aeroplanes, 8,000 tractors, 13,000 tanks, 1.5 million blankets, 15 million pairs of army boots, 107,000 tonnes of cotton, 2.7 million tonnes of petrol products and 4.5 million tonnes of food. And so I think it's very clear just to, to, again, strengthen the argument that without the backing of that capitalist democracy, the autocracy of the Soviet Union could not have survived and then launched its own offensives against the Germans. And of course, the Russia today is not receiving anywhere near that amount of support from its so-called allies in its fight against Ukraine. And that is going to inevitably have an impact on the battlefield when we're talking about such large scale operations that we are, which of course pale in significance to the Second World War. But even relative to that, they're not receiving anything like this in terms of weapons and support. Now, another interesting argument relevant to all of this is that the longer an autocracy has to fester over time in its own sort of fatal flaws, then the more likely it is to go rotten and implode. And one listener highlights that the Nazis didn't have enough time to consolidate everything, specifically not the armed forces before they went to war. Stalin, of course, also arguably hadn't had enough time to fully corrupt the system. And in many ways, the Second World War gave him a boost. And as I talked about yesterday, there were many people in the Soviet Union who hated Stalin and may even have wanted to see him dethroned were it not for the Second World War, which acted as this unifying force within Russia and within the Soviet Union at the time. And if you compare those two regimes with the fascists in Italy, who had a much longer period in office, in power, as it were, then you could see the long term impact of that autocracy and how it degraded its ability to function effectively over a sustained period. Mussolini, of course, had failed invasions in Africa, which had a hugely debilitating impact. But more generally, his power waned quite considerably over time. And obviously, its capacity to be able to fight 
effectively against the Allies in the 19, mid-1940s, after Operation Wolf, I think it was, the invasion of Sicily, or is that Husky? Gosh, I'm sure listeners are going to <laughs> go to tell me uh, very shortly. But uh, anyway, you know, the uh, ability for Mussolini and for the Italian fascists to resist the Allies was greatly reduced after years in office. And so it's a very interesting point that. And Obviously, they are prone the longer the regimes go on for yes man syndrome to kick in and for corruption to become more become more endemic. And we are arguably seeing that in Russia, too. Putin's been in charge for a long, long time. He's clearly blinkered and is making egregious miscalculations, which has got him to this catastrophic point. And it reminds me of that quote, is it uh, Lucan, who says that no loyalty exists between sharers in tyranny. And as the pressure is increasing now, those who are around him are no doubt going to be circling the longer that this war goes on. And under pressure, regimes often implode very quickly when they're under that kind of pressure. I know that we've been following this war very closely and it feels like it's been going on a very, very long time. But actually, if we look at this historically, this is still a very short duration as a war goes and already look at the cost that this is for Russia. And so if it goes on another year, another two years, what's that going to look like for Putin? I don't think it's going to be particularly favourable. And just one other point here uh, I think is worth making. As I was trying to drum home yesterday, the comparisons of the Second War are, are helpful in lots of ways, but they can also be unhelpful because what Putin has to, at his disposal now is vastly, vastly reduced compared to what Stalin had in the 1940s. And he would not be able to articulate this as a total war against Ukraine. He would not be able to bring millions to his cause that were willing to fight when they were formally invaded by the Germans that he can for a essentially imperialist war that more resembles one in the 19th century, which is a point made by Thomas Clausen in Friday's episode, last Friday's episode. So just worth bearing that in mind as well, that it's very important to make these historical parallels. And of course, there is huge ramifications on the post-war order of the Second World War and on the Russian mentality with regard to the West in particular. But it is also important to remember that they are very, very different wars in scale. And so those who try and say, well, look at the Second World War, Russia can rearm, remobilize and, and bring their force to bear. It's far too much of an overreach in comparison, I would argue. And so whilst I'm very aware that I was sort of positing that as a thought point several months ago, I've now come to the conclusion that it is not a valid comparison and should be dismissed, which of course has some ramifications, perhaps how we think about Russia in the long term in fighting this war in Ukraine. Well, thank you very much, Francis. And thank you to our listeners for emailing in. It was very interesting to read your thoughts. And I've realised, of course, that if you're listening to this fresh, you'll actually have to go back and listen to yesterday. So that's makes sense. And um, as Francis said last Friday, his interview with Dr. Thomas Clausen is absolutely fascinating. I think it's our most listened to podcast ever. So if you haven't heard that, do go back and listen to that as well. But thank you, Joe, Francis and Genevieve for all of your reporting and time today. Can I come to your final thoughts ahead of the weekend? Joe Barnes, why don't you go first? What will you be looking at over the next few days? Well, I'm finalising preparations as I pack up and ship out to Ukraine on Sunday. So that's, um, you're no doubt here for me inside the country. Early plans are planning up to go north of Kiev to Chernihiv, where we're going, going to look at how villages have rebuilt themselves after occupation. Um, hopefully speak to some soldiers preparing for the counteroffensive, but well, that's all all to be seen. But one, one of my final thoughts is, and it's um, really fascinated me over, well, it's, and I'm sure lots of other people are over the last few weeks, is the patriot system and how the Ukrainians are using it. 
we know that it shot down a Kinzel missile, which the Kremlin, these hypersonic missiles, the Kremlin has previously touted as unstoppable. Earlier this week, it stopped a, a volley of Kinzel, six of them, and one Patriot rocket launcher was damaged in that Russian missile barrage. But in the CNN article that both Francis and I have referred to in terms of the US looking to basically not block F-16s being sent to Ukraine by other their European allies, there's a, this fantastic nugget of information that a in recent weeks, a US-made Patriot air defence system has been used to shoot down at least one faraway Russian fighter jet by the Ukrainian forces operating them. The CNN article goes, uh, the Russian planes, the Patriot system was targeting on a bombing run to fire missiles against Ukrainian targets. But then if you actually then look back and you start joining some dots, we might have actually discovered what has happened. So last week, there were reports in Russian media that an Su-34 and Su-35 fighter jets were shot down over a border region, as well as two MI-8 helicopters, and we know that to be Beryansk, so sort of north of Ukraine on that Russian border, and it's, it is border territory, it's frontier land. And according to Commerzant, the uh, well-known Russian business paper, these fighter jets were supposed to be delivering a missile and bomb attack on targets in the Chernihiv region of Ukraine. So do we now think that, I believe the Ukrainians have admitted to having eight launchers as part of the Patriot system defending Kyiv, have they actually moved one further out and north of Kyiv to potentially be able to target Russian jets that are flying in Russian territory and dropping bombs on, or fl- launching bombs at Ukrainian targets? Because Russian Air Force has been very non-committal. It doesn't often fly sources or attack runs inside Ukrainian territory or close to front lines because it knows they're going to get blown out of the sky by air defences. But previously flying in that direct border region inside Russian territory they've been untouchable but has the introduction of the Patriot missile system now actually changed that equation and has it potentially pushed Russian fighter jets and helicopters further back inside Russian territory as well as Ukrainian territory so that's something that's fascinating and something that we'll hear a lot more about in the weeks to come. Thank you very much, Joe, and best of luck with your reporting trip and do stay safe. It'll be very good to hear what you're up to when you're out there, of course. Uh, but we hope you know your travel over there goes as smoothly as it can. Francis Sternley, would you like the very, very final thoughts? Thanks, David. Well, wrapping up all of this Second World War stuff this week, I, w- I mentioned yesterday that large parts of the war on the Eastern Front were actually fought in Ukraine. And I wanted to expand on that a little bit, bringing in some of the research by Timothy Snyder, of course, American historian, will be familiar to many, many listeners, fantastic lectures and books on the subject of Ukraine. And he points out that more Ukrainian civilians were killed than were Russians and that more Ukrainian soldiers were killed fighting the Wehrmacht than Americans, British and Frenchmen taken together. And the numbers are staggering. So Ukrainian military deaths was 1.6 million, as I say, considerably higher than the combined American, British, Canadian, Australian forces, but also civilian deaths. The the Russians lost 7.2, and obviously it's very hard to calculate these things accurately, but around 7.2 million civilian deaths. But the Ukrainians lost 5.2 million. And relative to their respective scales, of course, the Ukrainian lost 
a far larger percentage of its population than Russia did. And that matters for various different reasons. It matters for thinking about Ukraine in Europe, Ukraine's sacrifice in fighting fascism. Um, we don't often think about it in that way as the Ukrainian contribution. It's just all lumped together as part of the Soviet Union. But it is worth bearing that enormous numbers in mind. It's also, as well, I think, puts pay to a lot of the myths that Putin has continuously regurgitated during his time as effective dictator of Russia. He bangs this drum that it was only the Soviets that fought against the Nazis, that it was Russia particularly that took the hardest hit. But actually, Ukraine took an enormous hit in defeating Nazism. And so any claim that tries to make it only a Russia-only issue, which is what he does in, in saying that really the Soviet Union was Russia in terms of its fighting, is inaccurate. And it's also inaccurate, of course, for the egregious lies that he makes about the role of the Allies in supporting the Soviet Union during the Second World War. I've talked in the past about history books that have said that Britain was still supporting Germany after Operation Barbarossa was invaded in 1941, which is simply untrue for the fact that it was Britain that stood alone in 1940 and that the Soviet Union was an ally of Germany. Uh, so it's lie, a lie on that front, but also, of course, for the fundamental role that we've described today of the Lend-Lease Act in keeping the Soviet Union in the fight, that vital support from the Allies and particularly the United States that meant that the Soviets could fight in that war and fight the Germans when things were looking incredibly dicey for them due to their own failings. And so, as I say, this argument that he tries to depict now the Second World War as a fight really against of, as Russia against the Nazis is just a vast oversimplification. And I would go as far as it, it being by a, a sins of omission, by not talking about the vital role that, that America played in that. And so this attempt to make the war in Ukraine as yet another war against the Nazis and the war against the West, the invaders, the hostile West, um, is just simply inaccurate. And so I just wanted to end there with a few more reflections on, on the Second World War and the role of Ukraine in particular, a role that was vital and yet is often forgotten. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, Subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine The Latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.com. .co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear. And today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.